Hello and welcome to We Go Way Back, the podcast that goes back in time to help better understand today. I'm Alex Jones. I'm Kit Heron. And I'm Tom Gordon-Martin. And this week, Kit investigates a group of people that very few of us actually know about, I think it's safe to say, but perhaps all of us should. Last month's publication of the report into racial disparities in the UK caused quite a stir. The Commission claimed that life in the UK was no longer rigged against ethnic minorities. No longer. But what about life for black people 90 years ago? Dr Harold Moody is a good place to start. Dr Moody moved to South London from Jamaica. He soon became a pillar of the local community, but faced with racist discrimination, he founded the League of Coloured Peoples, a trailblazing group that advocated for black Britons in the 1930s and 40s. I'm joined by Stephen Bourne, a historian of black British heritage and author of Black Poppies and Under Fire, books about Britain's black community in the First and Second World Wars, to discuss the League, its work and its legacy today. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you for inviting me. Great. So to begin, I'd like to get a sense of why the League of Coloured Peoples was founded in 1931. And firstly, I'd like to kind of know, do we know roughly how many black people there would have been in the UK at the time of its foundation? We don't know numbers. Um, We don't know how many black people, people of colour, people of African descent, would have been living in Britain in 1931 because partly because the census, the British census, and there would have been one in 1911, just before the First World War, and another in 1921, which isn't yet available, didn't record ethnicity as they did in America. America was much more race conscious in that respect. So if you go to the American census of 1931, which I believe it is available, yes, because I've I've seen it. They do include ethnicity, but we didn't. So there were no accurate records of numbers. We can only hazard a guess. So, and I don't like hazarding a guess, but, but there were, what I would say is by 1931, there were established black communities in our seaports, mainly Cardiff, Liverpool, and London's East End but there are also many thousands of black people integrated into wider communities right across the country. And uh, I suppose black people had been in England uh, and the UK for a long time before that, right? We're talking, you know, going back centuries through the British empire, there had been, obviously at the start, there'd been- want to go back to Roman times. Mm. It's like, yeah. it's fairly well established now amongst those that are interested in the black presence in Britain that, you know, you you can go right back to to Roman times, but in in the sort of, I won't say modern Britain, but certainly since the 1500s, there has been a black presence in in London and the United Kingdom. Um, 
through the Tudor period, the Victorian era, the First World War. And during the First World War, many black men from across what was then known as the British Empire would have joined the armed services and settled in this country after the war because they were British subjects and they knew this. And after the First World War, they didn't want to go back to living under colonial rule in Jamaica or Nigeria or Trinidad or wherever they may have come from. So they stayed and they married. Uh, some married British women and had mixed race children. So by 1931, there was a substantial um, black community in Britain and they did need some form of representation, which is how the League of Coloured Peoples came about. Mm. And, and before we get on to the League of Coloured Peoples, it's just interesting, I suppose, how, um, do we know how easy it was um, for pe people from the colonies to settle in, say, London, or, um, you know, because now it's, it's, it's obviously there's a lot of, there's whole, a lot of bureaucracy and, and visas to get and things like that. And it, you know, was, was it just a case of you, of you could come at any time if you had the money, you could come and settle? Or was it, was it more complicated than that? Well, as, I, as I've already said, there were British subjects, but mm. in some cases there would have been problems. In other cases, there weren't. If they gravitated towards an established black community, as many did, there were less problems. It, it's, I don't know too much about um, barriers that were put up to excluding people of colour, if you like, from across the empire, from settling here. But many, many, many thousands did by 1931. And, and I've never been a historian that takes for granted what I'm told by previous historians. So my personal point of view is that on an individual basis, different black individuals in different parts of the country, in different parts of London, the capital, would have had different experiences. And we have to be open to that, that they didn't all have the same experience. They didn't all come from the same class. Some would have been West African students at universities. Some would have been West Africans who studied law at Edinburgh or in London and went into into the, the world of law. Some would have been doctors like Dr. Harold Moody and Dr. Cecil Belfield Clark, both of whom, as it happens, settled in the London Borough Southwark and practice in the London Borough Southwark, which is where I'm from. And others would have been road sweepers or much more, there would have been some professions that they would have been excluded from, certainly in the, in the 1930s, a lot of British hospitals wouldn't accept black nurses. But that began to change during the Second World War. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, is the, the reality is very, very different to what we expect it to be. Um, the diversity of people and social backgrounds and class and professions that they went into is much wider than people have given credit for. Obviously, you're um, a historian of Black Britain, but I somehow I often get the sense that um, we don't know as much about our Black history in this country as, say, in the US. 
where it's very widely explored. Uh, I think I, I, I would sort of understand what you're saying. I mean, there have been many historians of Black Britain over the last, particularly the last 40 years. Um, some of the early ones I would have read as a teenager, like James Walvin and Falarin Shylong. This is before Peter Fryer wrote the huge, huge book, uh, Stay in Power, The History of Black People in Britain. That came out in 1984. My books tend to be more accessible because they're smaller. Um, they're more capturing more the, the anecdotal first-hand testimony. And with someone like Dr. Howard Moody, for example, who I've written a lot about in my books, um, including the most recent one, Under Fire, which is about Black Britain in the Second World War. There is some first-hand testimony that, 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 that is available of his, including, for example, his the scripts of his BBC radio broadcasts from the war years. The radio programmes sadly don't exist, but the BBC were meticulous at keeping scripts of every programme, radio programme, that they broadcast. So I've accessed them as well, and they're wonderful to read. So you mentioned um, Dr. Harold Moody, um, who is obviously one of the founders, um, if maybe the most important uh, founder of the League of Coloured Peoples. Why did he found it? Why? What was the need for it? He came here from Jamaica in 1904. He qualified as a doctor in London by the end of this sort of Edwardian era. The First World War broke out in 1914, so he's already has established a practice, a GP practice in Peckham, Southeast London. And so the way I understand it, during the First World War, he's not yet a campaigner. He's a local GP in a working class community. He has a wife. They have six children um, in, in that sort of period, the First World War and the 1920s period. So he's got a growing family. But during the First World War, apparently some black soldiers got to know about him. You know, we didn't have television. We didn't have radio. Neither had been invented. We didn't have social media. We didn't have laptops. So it intrigues me that they heard about him. I don't know how they heard about him but they did, and they would write him in, in, with concerns about how they were being treated in the, in the British Army, fighting in the First World War. And it kind of sowed the seed for what he did later. Now, the League of Coloured Peoples was, was the outcome of Dr. Harold Moody's desire to have a pressure group in Britain that could put pressure on what, what was then known as the Colonial Office, which was part of the British government. I think the colonial office was based in Whitehall. I can't remember, but it, it. But certainly, Howard Moody knew about the colonial office and knew about the people that worked there, and would liaise with them. And and so by 1931, the need for representation at government level, at colonial office level, was was very important. And and Dr. Moody took the lead in that. It just breaks my heart that. Although to me, he is as important to British history in the widest sense as Dr. Martin Luther King is 
to American history and specifically African-American history, we've never taught Dr. Howard Moody's story in our schools. Dr. Martin Luther King and the American Civil Rights Movement has always taken precedence. I think that's wrong. Nothing against Dr. Martin Luther King or the African-American Civil Rights, but we have comparable stories to tell in, in our own country. And by all means, we have to remember that the League in 1931 wasn't the first Black-led organization, because I've written about another one in my book, Black Poppies, about Britain in the, Black Britain in the First World War, and it was the African Progress Union. It wasn't as long term as the League, it faded by that time. But certainly John Archer was an early Black leader, British-born um, Black leader in this country after the First World War with the African Progress Union. And African didn't mean just Africans in Britain, it meant all people of colour. But Dr Moody's League of Coloured Peoples did attract a, a wide range of people to its committee and a wide range of Black leaders across the empire who just supported them and lent their names to their cause. And they became, throughout the 1930s, certainly by the, the beginning of Second World War, 1939, the League is the established Black-led organisation in this country that was trying to improve the conditions of, of Black people in this country. And how would you summarise its achievements as a group? I think the League is one of the most important and significant organisations in this country. And it's always, and it's never been given the credit that it deserves. It lasted from 1931 for about 20 years. It faded in the early 50s. But sadly, Dr. Harold Moody died in 1947. He just wore himself out because he tried to do so much. Um, after the Second World War had ended, he, he, he just burned out. Um, and the League couldn't survive without him. It, it kind of struggled on for several years, but it's sad that it faded. It's sad that he died at the very point at which, a year later, the Windrush arrives with the first wave of post-war settlers, I don't say immigrants, I hate that word immigrants, settlers from Africa and the Caribbean, which continued into the 1950s and into the 1960s and onwards. And they really needed an organisation like the League, but sadly the League had folded by the time the numbers of, of settlers had grown in the mid 50s. And, but, and, and it, it, it's heartbreaking that they were, the work, their work, their groundbreaking work was so forgotten. And also, from my point of view, sad that so many people from the sort of radical thinkers, the Marxist thinkers, actually put it down uh, a lot, saying that, that Dr. Moody was something of an Uncle Tom, meaning he was too friendly with the white people. But he, his way of working was, was important in its day. There was room, as I say, there's room for everyone, and we should not criticise people who want to be radical and be more radical and left-wing in their views and in their activism, Dr. Moody did it in a different way, he did it the way he felt most comfortable with, with a Christian purpose, um, with a diplomatic way of doing things. 
it, it fascinates me that the, there were black radicals here in the 1930s who, who were very robust in, and, and rightly so in their criticism of the British empire and colonialism, um, but they were not very friendly towards Dr. Moody, but that to me is fascinating because it shows that the black community in Britain in the 1930s before the war broke out were, as I said earlier, coming from different backgrounds, different social classes, different political points of view. And, and when you look at the range of people that were here, like George Padmore, who was, who was a radical thinker, C.L.R. James, who was a Marxist uh, writer from Trinidad. Um, but I think generally they were all wanting a better standard of life and better protection of the black community, because this is before we had the Race Relations Act. I think the first one was 1965. So it took an awfully long time to start to, to in this country, to, to have protection in law for black people. I remember myself, I, I went, my first job it, when I left school, oh no, sorry, when I was still at school, I, I used to do a Saturday job in a shop in Riley and Peckham which I packed in very quickly when I realised this was 1976 and this was just literally five minute walk from where Dr Moody lived and worked and, and where the league was based for a time um, and they discriminated they said if any black people come in asking for job vacancies tell them we don't have any even when we do and I thought ooh don't like that but this was around the time the race relations um, sorry the, uh, the commission for racial equality was founded and rightly so in 1976, because it was still going on in Peckham, discrimination in, in the workplace, less so, but there were still these little places, shops and places getting away with it. In my own lifetime, I remember that. And I remember reporting them, but it wasn't against the law. You couldn't go to the Peckham police station and report that this shoe shop in Lane Peckham won't employ black people. You just didn't do that in 1976. They would have just laughed at you. So we live in a very different world now, but it's not perfect. But but mm. this is all part of the beginnings of what we've come to today. To go back to um to go back to the league, so I so you say it's one of they they're one of the most significant groups, and we should really remember them. But I suppose what I'm getting at is that is there any evidence that they they achieved sort of tangible improvements for black people? in their standard of living and, and their um, protection and that kind of thing? Well, it, it drew attention to it. And I'm sure in some cases uh, their work didn't, did improve. Certainly when the war broke out, Dr. Harold Moody's son, um, Joe Moody, who qualified for a commission in the army, he went to, I think it was Dulwich College or in or Alain's school, you know, it's terrible. I can never remember that which one he went to, but he went to a good school. Joe had a very good education, but he did qualify for a commission in the army, but they turned him down on the grounds of race. You know, Walter Tull from the First World War and all those other soldiers from the First World War who did rise through the ranks and were of African descent had all been forgotten. Walter Tull was forgotten. Um, and so Dr. Howard Moody wasn't going to accept that. And he had enough clout and enough influence with the colonial office, with Whitehall, with the government, 
to have that ruling changed. And he challenged and challenged and challenged. The ban was lifted. Joe was accepted into the army and commissioned as an officer and trained as an officer um, and served all through the Second World War, you know, exemplary uh, um, service during the Second World War. And almost, well, five of Dr. Moody's children who were adults when the war broke out, uh, joined either the army or two of them became doctors in the, in the, in, in the war. Another one joined the RAF. So without Moody and the League's pressure as a pressure group, pressurizing the powers that be, that would probably never have happened because they were that influential. And certainly in other walks of life, I can't be more specific than that because the work was mm. so widespread that they were um, making big changes happen. Sure. And so that that is like the, what, what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to link it to the, the latter more the sort of post-war organizations that the although the league faded there would have been post-war organizations as well that and pressure groups that led to uh that had black a black presence that led to the race relations board and later the um sorry the race relations act and later the commission for racial equality yeah sure and i suppose if we think about the longer term legacy of the League of Coloured Peoples, you might say that the equivalent organisation today would be Black Lives Matter, as far as there is an equivalent organisation. Oh. But yeah, it seems to yeah, me from what I agree with that. Sorry. It seems to me from what you're saying that the League of Coloured Peoples had, had real influence um, in the sort of higher echelons of government, in a sense. Whereas to me, it seems Black Lives Matter, for all their kind of media um, ubiquity, you know, they're everywhere and everyone knows about them. It doesn't really feel like they have people kind of speaking for them, say in the home office or, or they, they don't have the ear of number 10, you know, do, do you think that's fair? And do you think the League of, it's fair to say maybe the League of Coloured Peoples was more influential because it was more targeted? I wouldn't even be able to hazard a guess. It was a different time in history when it was at its at its height, the 1930s and 40s. As I've already said, we didn't have the social media or the black media, including newspapers. And I mean, it, it, the, the League had its own newsletter for its member members, but it's hard. It was a different time in history. So it's hard to know, to compare it. Although I, I think it's interesting and someone certainly should sit down and write a thesis on comparing the League of Coloured Peoples and the Black Lives Matter movement. But there are similarities that the League came along at a time when the Black community in Britain needed representation and leadership of that kind and had it to a point, although we have to accept that before Windrush and before the Second World War, the numbers of Black people in Britain were much, much smaller even though we don't have accurate figures. Um, and the media was very different then. But certainly Moody was, and the League were, were known about in certain quarters and had some sort of influence in the way that the Black Lives Matter movement has. But the Black Lives Matter movement attracted a lot of media publicity. Whereas I don't think you could say that about, say, Dr. Moody's 
campaign, if you want to call it that, to get his son accepted into the army during the Second World War. Yes, uh, well, I think that's probably about all we've got time for, Stephen. Um, thanks very much. Okay, uh, Black Poppies and Under Fire, if you want more, more information, but thank you so much. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you very much, Kit, for that interview. Um, I learned a great deal. The first thing I wanted to say was actually how interesting it was to hear a historian talk about their personal experience. Stephen's example of working in that shoe shop in Peckham as a young boy and experiencing the daily racism that existed in the 1970s, just stepping away from the topic which you've brought to us, but talking about the interviewee, did you not find it really interesting to hear the way in which he was influenced as a young person living in Britain in the 70s? Yeah, it's fascinating. And he clearly brought like his personal experience um, to his work, which is all about, you know, black Britain. Um, so, yeah, no, that was very interesting. And it was also just interesting to hear about the 70s, because, of course, for maybe more left wing people among us, the 70s um, can seem like the last decade before things went horrifically wrong with Thatcher. Um, but actually, you know, it wasn't like that. There was a, a huge, it was, in, there are many ways in which it was a lot, lot worse, um, especially for um, black people. You know, people were very badly discriminated against. That strikes me as the sort of new narrative, which I'm sure is probably true, which is that things were appalling for ethnic minorities in the 70s and are considerably better now. I just, one of the questions I had from that was, I actually don't really know how we got from the 70s to now. I, I, I'm, I'm sure it's a topic way too broad for us to really touch on, but I actually don't know like what the main trends were that got us to this place. And surely those are the things we should be identifying when we want to move forward and learning lessons. I think there was a lot of legislation, um, specifically like again, stuff like hate crime laws and rules that laws are basically meant that you couldn't discriminate based on race. Um, then I imagine there, were, you know, there was a lot of struggle, and there still is. But like there were a lot of efforts made to kind of integrate different communities and and work on racial harmony. It's just now it seems to be whenever we talk about this sort of thing, uh, that is often said, isn't it? Just how appalling it was in the seventies. Um, I also don't know if things got worse for a period in the seventies than they were, let's say, in like the fifties and sixties. What I'm basically saying is, and this probably leads into a broader conversation that I can talk about, is I don't really know that much about race in this country, especially for some reason, sort of like late 20th century race relations. Um, so learning about someone like Dr. Moody was amazing. Um, and it seems like he's definitely the sort of figure that we should be learning about. To me, it felt like I learned about a part of a story that I had not been told before, that slots just before Windrush and the arrival of uh, settlers from the Caribbean. Um, and yeah, this individual, Dr. Harold Moody, uh, you can't necessarily understand um, late 20th century black British history without knowing about him. Uh, and for some reason, not enough people do, which is mm. which is frustrating. But thank you, Kit, because you brought it to me through with this interview. And in my sort of brief Wikipedia research leading into this, I always considered segregation to be sort of like a reserve of the United States. However, just reading about what Moody was fighting against, 
it seems like even though I don't think it was written into law per se that you um, couldn't sort of, oh sorry, that you sh are allowed to discriminate, um, it seems like it was totally widespread in the 30s. For, I mean, I, I think it was a relatively marginal black population in the 30s, but the people that did exist seemed to have a really difficult time. And I think, actually, I'm not saying I that it surprised me, but it's just something I'd, I've never really thought about. I've never really thought about the experience of black people in the 1930s. Yeah, because we have this narrative, like in the, like you say, that the US was so terrible, and of course it was. Um, but somehow this is just not, like records of this kind of stuff have not really survived over here. Like what um, Stephen said that, you know, in um, the early censuses in the first part of the 20th century didn't record race. So we don't mm. even know how many black people there were in this country uh, at, in, in that period which is mad, um, really. Yeah, and something that separates us from the US, like, to this day, right? Mm. I think for now, that's probably all we have time for. Yeah, it was really lovely speaking with you two, as per, and uh, we'll see you again next week or next time. Thank you. Cheers. 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 Cheers.